Everybody's good? Great. Genesis chapter 23 is where we are going to be, and we're looking to get into Genesis 23 and then into Genesis 24, like I say, Lord willing, and uh, cover, cover a lot here, but uh, it's rich. It's just God's word is so good. So remember, we're coming off of this very wonderful chapter in Genesis 22, this great picture of uh, Isaac, Abraham sacrificing Isaac there on Mount Moriah, this great picture of, of uh, Jesus Christ who gives his life willingly there upon the cross. Now, we continue on in chapter 23, and it says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So Sarah, interestingly, is the only woman mentioned in the Bible that's, whose age is given at her death. That's kind of something, whatever you want to say about that. But she's a, a special woman. She's looked at uh, in the New Testament as just a real model of a, a wife that just serves you know, her husband and blesses her husband. And this death now for Sarah, uh, of Sarah, has just brought Abraham to a real, you know, time of mourning and grief here. The death of a, a loved one always brings such sadness, no doubt. And Abraham, it says he, he mourned and wept for her. Ray Stemmen said this, what a bitter day it is when a person loses a loved one. It is perhaps the lowest point ever reached by the human spirit and the sunset for him of all earth's hopes and expectations. In Genesis 23, we stand beside Abraham now as he weeps at the grave of Sarah. He is walking through the valley where death has cast its shadow. But we shall see as we read this chapter that there is a light which always shines in the dark shadows in the life of a man of faith. And interestingly, this is the first time in the Bible that we hear those words or see those words mourn and weep. And it's interesting that it's linked to, it's tied to this point of death. And we understand that sin brings about death, that this is kind of the reality for all of us, that all of us in one way or another are going to face death, whether it's the, the death of ourselves, hopefully, hopefully we make it to the rapture and that's great. But most likely, we're going to face the death of a, a loved one. This is going to be the evident result of sin that has come into the world. Tears are going to be with us until sin is done away with. The Bible makes it clear that it's all right to mourn. That we don't have to be those that try to put on some kind of facade and pretend like we're too spiritual to weep and mourn. No, mourning is something that God has given us. Tears are something that God has given us to where when we are grieving and we're going through these times that we can kind of let that all out. In fact, it's interesting how in Psalms it talks about how the Lord, you know, stores up those tears in a, in a bottle. I think that's so, so precious here that the Lord wants to be that comfort for us in that time of mourning and grief. But we realize we mourn more often for ourselves than we do for our loved one. We're going to miss them. We're saddened over that. Uh, but yet, we have to balance that out with the reality that our loved ones are, are free now from the pains and the problems of this world, especially for the one who is a believer. Our, our mourning and tears are often our own kind of struggling over the, the loss and the missing of that person. Now, it's interesting that the place where Sarah died is emphasized. Where she died, Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron in the land of Canaan. Hebron, interestingly, means association or fellowship. In other words, Sarah died being in fellowship with God. And that should bring comfort to those that mourn as Abraham was. Canaan is also mentioned. Canaan was that land of blessing. It was that picture of the spirit-filled life when we're walking with the Lord and being led of the spirit. And as we are doing that, we just enjoy his blessings at work in our lives and we look forward to the day that we'll be united with him. I mean, think about Paul and, and in how he's writing in Philippians, you know, where he's just going, man, I long to depart from this fleshy tent and to be with the Lord. He's looking forward to that day. 
Now, like I said, of course, we miss our loved ones who passed on, but they are, as believers, as Sarah was, they're in heaven surrounded by the light and the love of Jesus. And for the, those that know Jesus, we have that hope of heaven. Paul would write about that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Notice that. Not wrong to sorrow, but don't sorrow as though there's no hope. That's what Paul is getting at. For he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, and boy, I hope we're that generation, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. This is to be a source of comfort for us, to know that, first of all, the Lord is coming back again, and we're going to be united with Him, whether it be at the rapture or whether it be at our departing from this life, we are going to be with the Lord. And so for the believer and those that are having lost a believing loved one, we rejoice. We thank the Lord for that, and we trust the Lord to, again, just uh, we know he's, he's with them. So we can rejoice when loved ones move on in eternity, for they are in a place where Revelation 21 forces God will then wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. See, the death of a loved one does not need to cripple us or compel us to just kind of, or, or bring us to a point of just moping around. No, death of a loved one can either cripple us or compel us to continue on, to rise up in faith and hope in the Lord. And that's what, what Abraham does next in verse 3. It says that Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. Abraham stood up. It's like he kind of lifted his eyes. He got up. He looked up and he continued on. Take time to mourn, but know that there's a time to continue on and to do so in faith and trust in the Lord. There was a sports fan that was sitting in the top row at the Super Bowl, barely able to see the field. He noticed that there was a vacant seat about three rows back on the 50-yard line. He was still, it was still vacant when the second quarter started. So he went down and asked the man seated next to it, is anyone sitting there? The man said, no, have a seat. A few minutes later, he asked the man if he knew whose seat this was and why they weren't here at such an important event. The man said, well, for 10 years, it's been his wife's seat, but that she had passed away. Feeling sorry for the nice man, the fan asked if he didn't have a friend or family member that he could have invited to fill that seat during that game. And the man said, no, they're all at the funeral. Maybe that's a little too soon to be jumping back into life and normalcy. Maybe a bit more time to, to mourn and grieve. That's okay. But verse 3, like I read, says, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Abraham notices, he said, I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. That's the way that Abraham lived his life. Though he was promised to inherit this land, he did not consider it his own. Leviticus 25 verse 23 says, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, God says, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. I think this is how we can have a better effectiveness in kind of working through situations that are less than ideal, situations that can very well cripple us if we're not understanding these lives are temporary, this world is temporary, we're just sojourners passing through. I've got a, a greater hope before me, and that's the Lord and, and being with the Lord. Abraham knew that it wasn't for this life that he was ultimately living for. So when these trials and difficulties came, he knew they were temporary. He didn't allow himself to be overtaken by these troubles, but instead continued on waiting for his eternal promise. Abraham was that great pilgrim. Warren Wearsby says this, a fugitive is one who is running from home. A vagabond has no home. A stranger is away from home, but a pilgrim or a sojourner is heading home. This life is a journey, a pilgrimage to our destination. 
Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, life may have some difficulties for us, and it may be a, a bumpy journey, no doubt, but our focus and destination is our eternal home. It's heaven. And heaven is not just our destination. It's our motivation. It's the reason why we can lift up our eyes. It's the reason why we can get up and continue on each day because we have a blessed hope in the Lord. So Abraham says that I might bury my dead out of my sight. You see, Abraham wanted to do what needed to be done, but then move on. In other words, he didn't want this death to restrict him from continuing on in the things of the Lord. Now, typically, you know, when a person died in the Near East, they would be buried in their native land. Yet Abraham is again showing that he's a man who has moved on by faith now in the things of God to where he's looking to see Sarah is buried in the land of Canaan, the land that God has given them. He's no longer looking back to the former things saying, well, I better take Sarah back to our homeland. He's saying, no, this is it now for us. This is the place that God has given us. This is the place that we are going to remain and continue on. So Abraham sees Canaan as his home now. Look at verse five. We read this. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of the field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now, Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of a city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. Now, at first glance, this looks like a very nice gesture from Ephron. It's like he's saying, don't just take the cave, take the whole field that it's in. It's all yours. And it sounds like Ephron's just willing to give it to Abraham. It's yours, take it, have it. But when you begin to understand ancient Near Eastern customs, you begin to see what's happening here. You see the selling party would offer their item for free and the buyer would then refuse and then the seller would offer it at about twice its actual price, kind of as the starting point for the bargaining process to take place. So they kind of said, I'll take it. It's yours, have it. But then the buyer would be kind of, you know, customary tradition to say, no, no, no. How much is it? How much do you want? They'll put that price out there. But then it's that time to bargain. It's much the same way today when you travel to the Middle East. You know, we do lots of shopping in the markets when we go to Israel. And every time before we head to Jerusalem and we do the shopping, we always had to give like a Middle Eastern shopping 101 class real quickly on the bus before we let everybody off. Because it's like, you understand, you do not accept the first price that's given to you. You understand that's a bit of a bargain. In fact, people might say, oh, you like have it, it's yours. And you try to walk out, you say, no, no, what? Oh, you gotta pay for that, right? It's like, I thought you said I can have it, but that's not always the case, right? And it's quite exciting to shop, that I quite love it. I've tried it out here, it doesn't always go so well. You know, this shirt, 20, I give you 10. I take, you, get, you take 10, I give you 10. They don't like that too much. I try it, but it doesn't happen with much success. But that's the idea, is you bargain back and forth. You don't accept the first price here. And what's happening is that Ephron, well, let's, let's see here. We'll continue on, verse 12. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will give it, please hear me, I will give you money for the field, take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. Verse 14, and Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, my Lord, listen to me, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. Verse 17. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of his city. So when Ephron said, 
that the land was worth 400 shekels of silver. We might look at that and go, oh, he's giving him a nice deal. He's kind of... This was an exorbitant, right? This was way beyond what the actual price would be. When you look at the, the money that David paid for the, um, you know, the threshing floor um, there where the temple was built. I mean, this is way above the cost that, that David had paid. And, and yet, what was amazing is that Abraham accepts this price. I think Ephron was expecting a little bit of bargaining to happen. Abraham just goes, 400 shekels of silver, okay. Take it, it's yours. Abraham's not willing to take anything from Ephron. He doesn't want anyone to kind of, again, just like he did, remember, with the king of Sodom back in Genesis chapter 14. He didn't want to receive any kind of gift from anybody lest they say, Abraham was blessed and rich because of what I did for him. Abraham wanted it always to be about God. Say, no, God's done this work here. So Abraham agreed to that price, much, I'm sure, to the shock of all those that were witnessing this transaction happening. And notice in verse 19, And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Now it's emphasized that this land was, was deeded to Abraham. Though the whole land was his because God had given them the land, the only piece of property that Abraham ever actually owned legally was a tomb. Warren Wiersbe said this, If the Lord Jesus does not return and take us to heaven in our lifetime, the only piece of property each of us will own in the world will be a plot in the cemetery. Because we take nothing with us. We leave it all behind. But if we are investing in things eternal, we can send it ahead. If we live by faith, then we can die by faith. And when you die by faith, then you have a wonderful future. And Abraham's a man that's seeing that he is walking and moving by faith. We've seen through this chapter that it's by faith Abraham purchased the cave. By faith, Abraham buried Sarah in the cave. By faith, we see Abraham continually moving forward here, trusting the Lord in these things. Now, in this cave was not only buried Sarah, but then we also see Abraham is going to be buried there in chapter 25. We're going to see Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. We're going to see Jacob and his wife, Leah, will also be buried here in this cave. These people of faith were laid to rest in this parcel that was purchased by faith as a sign that God was not done with them yet. Joseph would even ask for his bones to be carried up out of Egypt and brought into the land of Canaan, the promised land, where he would be buried. Because he knew all these people of faith knew God's promises do not end with this life. God's going to do far more than he has done in this life, which is the hope of all those that die in faith now. Now, moving to chapter 24, we move into a wonderful transitional picture here that's once again a great, has great typological overtones to it. We, we've been seeing how the life of Isaac, right? is such a, an incredible foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Isaac was born miraculously, remember? Born miraculously. He was announced, that his, his birth was announced and his name was given before he was even born. It's exactly what happened with Jesus. His birth was announced, his name was given. He was born of a virgin, born miraculously. Isaac then in chapter 22, as we mentioned, was taken up to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed, the very place that Jesus himself would hang on a cross and give his life as a sacrifice for us. Now, what happened when Jesus gave his life on the cross? Well, the veil in the temple, remember, was torn in two from top to bottom. The law and the old covenant was now kind of put aside, and the way was opened up for all to have access to God. The walls of separation were removed, and everyone had access to God and that privilege of being in relationship with him now. However, in large part, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus. And so too, the nation of Israel has been, in a sense, put aside. They've been blinded, as Romans tells us. They've been blinded and put aside so that the Gentiles could come and be reconciled and receive this grace of God. This is what we see happening now between Genesis chapter 23 and Genesis 24. Sarah dies, picturing 
the nation of Israel that's been set aside. What is God at work doing now? Well, God has sent his spirit into the world since the time that Jesus died, rose again, and then ascended to heaven. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit cannot come unless I go to be with the Father. The Holy Spirit's been poured out in the world to do what? To draw a bride out for Christ. And that's the picture that we see emerging now as we move into chapter 24. I so love the Bible. I love how we see these wonderful glimpses and pictures of what God is doing and will be doing and these foreshadows and, and, and prophetic pictures that we see. It's true that a picture is worth a thousand words, isn't it? It's why I still prefer most of my books to have a lot of illustrations in them. I like a lot of pictures there. It's good. One day there was a little boy that was enjoying drawing in his classroom and each student was trying to illustrate something really important to, to them and to their life. The teacher came by and said to little Johnny, hey, what are you drawing today, Johnny? Johnny, Johnny replied, I'm, I'm drawing God. But the teacher said, nobody knows what God looks like. And to which Johnny replied, oh, they will in a minute. <laughs> so pictures are a great thing. They seem to really illuminate things for us. And I pray that Genesis 24 does that for us here. Let's read here. We're going to Again, we got a, a big chapter. We're going to take big chunks and kind of talk a bit about it. So let's look at verse 1 down to verse 9. Hope you're all there with me. Genesis 24 verse 1 says this. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife from my son Isaac. Verse 5, And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which he came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now notice what we read there in, in verse 1, that Abraham was what? He was blessed in all things. Isn't that cool? It's like Abraham's been living this life of faith. He's been called to basically leave all things. Get up out of the land by which you know, leave your father, your country. He's been called to leave all things and he's taken that journey of faith. And now we see here in Genesis 24 that Abraham has been a man that's blessed in all things. I think that's so wonderful. So often we think, God, you want me to do what? Well, what's going to happen about this sin? How am I going to provide for myself here? What's... And yet, when we simply follow what God is calling us to do, we know and believe and trust that he's going to take care. He's going to provide. And we're going to see the greatest blessing come when we walk in obedience to the Lord. Matthew 6.33 says, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added to you. So Abraham calls his, his chief servant, his oldest servant, it says here, to come and do a very important specific task for him. And I'm not talking about that oath. That's some strange stuff here, right? That oath, you're looking at that going, what is this all about? Place your hand under my thigh. That seems kind of creepy. What's going on here? Well, this is something that's very unique kind of to, to Genesis. The placing of the hand under the person's thigh could be kind of a, a, a reference to circumcision, the sign of the covenant. Remember, God said to Abraham back in Genesis 18, or sorry, chapter 22, verse 18, God said, in your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, in your seed. So this is kind of like a, a reference to swearing to maintain the purity and the integrity of the seed in whom the, the promises of God would be accomplished. So he's kind of placing his hand under the thigh, getting very close to certain you know, organs that is very instrumental in that seed going forth and, and being blessed, right? So he's making this promise, this oath, kind of based on that. I'm grateful that a good handshake these days kind of does the job right there. So we're glad we're no longer living like Genesis here. But what's interesting in this chapter is that Abraham calls a servant, and, and the servant of Abraham is going to be a key figure throughout this chapter. It's a long chapter, and he, he is a very prominent person, and yet 
the servant is never mentioned in chapter 24. Never mentioned by name, I should say. And that's interesting because we've seen Abraham mention his servant previously there in, in chapter 15, verse 2. Many believe that this man that we're seeing here in chapter 24 is Eliezer, who was the head, basically, of the household, the heir of Abraham's house, as mentioned in Genesis 15, verse 2. So why isn't he named here? Well, Eliezer, his name means God is help or God my help. And throughout this chapter, Eliezer is going to serve as a type of of the Holy Spirit. Remember the flow that we're seeing here from Genesis chapter uh, 20 to 22, sorry, chapter 21 to 22, into 23 and into 24. Eliezer seems to be a type of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, when Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit that would come into the world, he referenced him as how? The helper. The helper. Parakletos, one who is called alongside. And here's Eliezer, God is my help. Here, Eliezer is being called alongside to help in gathering a bride for Isaac. This is what he's being called to do, to gather a bride. Exactly what the Holy Spirit is actively at work in the world doing today, gathering a bride for Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is not out there to make a name for himself. He's not looking for praise or um, attention on himself. What does he do? He comes to make Jesus known. He comes to magnify and testify Jesus. John 15, verse 26 to 27. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. Interesting. Where's Isaac? Isaac's not going with Eliezer. Isaac's back with his father, with Abraham. Abraham's instructing Eliezer to go forth out into the world. And where's the servant sent to gather a bride? To a foreign country. Just as the Holy Spirit enters into a hostile, foreign world to gather a Gentile bride for Jesus Christ. A bride that's far removed from the things of God, just as Rebecca is with her family sitting in the land of Mesopotamia. Remember, Abraham came from a land of idolatry. And here they are far from God, and yet, here's this woman that's going to be gathered now to Isaac. And notice it, it says there, and, and if the woman is not willing to follow you, then, then you'll be released um, from this oath here. Verse 8, if the woman's not willing to follow you. See, the Holy Spirit comes very gently, doesn't he? He doesn't force himself upon anyone. He's not saying, you and you and you are going to be saved, whether you like it or not. You're going to come with me. You're going to be, uh, you know, part of the bride of Christ. You know, count your blessings. You and you, no, sorry. Can't make it. He's not forcing himself on anyone. He's coming. He's drawing people. But every person has to make that decision willingly and, and voluntarily themselves. Everyone has a choice to either follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit to receive life in Jesus or to resist him and continue on at enmity with God. So this is the picture we're seeing here, my friends, in the, in the Genesis chapter 24. And it's so fitting as we see Genesis 22 pictures the cross and the crucifixion resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chapter 23, Sarah dies, Israel laid aside, and now the work of the Holy Spirit in the world drawing a bride to Christ in this servant who is going to go nameless through this chapter here. The focus is on Isaac and his bride. Look at verse 10 here. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Verse 15, and it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, 
came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Interestingly, servant goes, 10 camels. Now, some have made a case for why 10 camels. Is there significance there? 10 camels, some have thought, could represent the law, the 10 commandments. That's possible. I don't want to make that connection a necessity, but it's interesting that these camels are going to be used to bring Rebecca and her entourage, her maids, back to Isaac. How is that fitting? Well, Galatians 3, 22 to, 23 to 25 says, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to do what? To bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. These camels are going to be instrumental in bringing Rebecca to the Savior. Just as the law is there to kind of point out our need for a Savior. But when we come to Christ, Paul makes that case in Galatians that we're no longer needing to live under the law. We're no longer needing to continue on trying to fulfill the law by our own works. That's complete in Christ now. The law is there to bring us to Christ. Now verse 12 Interestingly, it's the first recorded prayer of guidance. The servant is calling out to God, God, basically, lead me and, and guide me in these things here. The servant's asking God to lead through the very ordinary events of life. He's not asking for a miracle. He's not, he's not even proposing a fleece. Like, God, okay, this will be the way that I will know that this is of you if you do this. That's not what he's saying. He's not presenting some kind of fleece. He's just saying, Lord, let it be. He's asking God to make clear who the right person is simply by the way that they respond. Now, it was very common for a woman to go to the well and offer a drink to any visitors that might be there. The well became kind of a very social area uh, of the nearby towns there, and people would gather and kind of fellowship. And if a stranger was there, people would come and offer help. But to give water to their animals was not required. That was kind of going against the kind of social order or social norms of that day and then to come and give water to 10 camels would be extremely going above and beyond the normal role of expectation that day now wells were oftentimes kind of you know dug down in the ground with steps leading down to them and drawing the water camels can drink upwards of 30 gallons of water if they've been traveling and are kind of you know the tanks on empty you know right 30 gallons of water perhaps so for a woman to make all those trips down the well to gather water. Let's say she's using a, a gallon-sized bucket, and each camel's going to drink 30 gallons, and you got 10 camels there. That's a lot of trips to the well. That's a lot of work that's going on there, isn't it? It would have clearly singled out somebody here of great characters. This would have been a huge undertaking. Now, I love as we see through this chapter the way that God is just lining things up, right? This servant doesn't have... Anyone in mind, he's not, he's not consulting the Middle East single scene or dating services around there this time. He's not trying to match things up for Isaac. He's just relying on God, and it's God that is providentially orchestrating all things together at just the right time. I think that's so awesome and wonderful to see how God just does that. And, and as we simply call out to him, and trust him. You know, God begins to direct and lead so wonderfully. I remember, um, boy, I've shared this story, I'm sure, before, but when I was, um, when I was a single guy, right, and Michelle and I had, you know, we met when we were 16, and, um, you know, she was, she was doing the old hard-to-get kind of thing. I was pursuing. She wasn't giving me much hope, you know. I went off to Bible college out in the east, and we kind of lost touch with each other, and, um, and then I had a girlfriend from there, and we had broken up, and I remember, you know, literally, I think the day that we had kind of broken up, I'm driving to church that night, and I hadn't seen, talked to Michelle in like over a year, and I'm driving to church, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm single now, all right, hey, hey, I wonder what Michelle's been doing, maybe I should give her a call, you know, maybe she's come to her senses now, finally, right? No, still praying for that. But, but so we're, I'm driving in, and, I'm, and I remember just kind of praying, you know, thinking about that. And I just remember it just seemed like the Lord was just speaking to me saying, Brent, don't worry about that stuff. 
Just focus on me, live for me, and I will bring that all into play. And I just remember driving my car going, Lord, you're right. I don't need to be pursuing this. I just need to pursue you. I just remember surrendering that, saying, Lord, I'll let you just lead that all together. And I drive to the church, and I pull in the parking lot, and the first person I see is Michelle. She doesn't go to the church. She's, I haven't seen her or talked to her in like over a year, and all of a sudden she's there. I'm like, God, that's, thank you. I was expecting like that to take a lot longer, but that's awesome. Thank you. But it's not always going to work that way. Don't, don't go, well, what happened to me? Welcome to this. No, it's not always going to work that way, but I love to see just how God just kind of directs and leads these things. And, uh, and he's doing that here with the servant, with Rebecca coming. Now, let's, let's read here, verse 16. Let's read another section. Verse 16 says this. Now, the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. So again, going down, coming up, out of the well, grabbing the water. <clears throat> and the servant, verse 17, ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. I think this man sitting there just like in awe, jaws dropped, he's like, I can't get over this woman going all out with this effort. I'm like, and, and he's probably thinking, that's kind of what I was praying for, Lord, and you're doing. This is amazing. This is wonderful. Verse 22, so it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing 10 shekels of gold and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Now remember, again, Nahor is Abraham's brother. This servant has not tried to, you know, go through the yellow pages, find out where everybody's, are your white pages, go through, where's everybody at? Let me contact, he doesn't know. This is just, again, that divine appointment here, the providence of God at work here. Verse 25, moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. So Rebecca, we see there, comes onto the scene, right? She does this incredible work of, of gathering water, of blessing, Eliezer, and, and not just giving him water, but like we read there, gathering water till all the camels had had enough to drink. She could have made a, a couple hundred trips to that well and back. I'm sure Eliezer was sitting there, like I said, just astonished at this devoted servant-like woman. In response to such an act of kindness, this went well beyond social duties. Eliezer now then gives her this jewelry, expensive jewelry, just to show his appreciation, right? Now, I love the way that the Bible refers to Rebecca again, a, a type of the church here now for us, right? I love how the Bible refers to Rebecca as beautiful and pure. That's what it, it tells us right there in verse um, uh, 16. Now, the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a, a virgin. She's pure, right? She's beautiful, she's pure. And this is, again, I think just such a wonderful picture of the church because, listen, women don't always feel that way, right? Women don't always feel like we're beautiful, like we're pure, but this is the work that Jesus is doing in us. And it's only accomplished through life in him. And, and as water is such a prominent picture here in Genesis 24, so it is in the work of our lives, in the way that Jesus washes us. Look at what Ephesians 5, verse 26 says, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church. Notice not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is a work that the Lord Jesus is doing in our lives to present us as pure, spotless. You are seen as beautiful. Why? Not because you are so beautiful, but simply because you are the bride of Christ. 
You're his. You are loved by him. And by him you are seen as beautiful. And he's doing that work of completion in us. What a blessing that is. And so Rebecca, it says, gives water to all the camels. She graciously opens her home to Eliezer now and to his entourage. And with this ongoing hospitality, Eliezer is just so overcome that he just pauses right then and there to worship God on the spot. And I love what he says. He says there in verse 27, as for me being on the way, the Lord led me. Isn't that great? This is often the way that the Lord God directs us. Because we love to sit and kind of wait for that audible of God. God, what's the next play? What's the next move? I'm waiting for that audible. I'm waiting for you to call it out. I'll be ready to go. But in the meantime, I'll just be sitting here in my lazy boy, just waiting for that next direction. That's oftentimes the way we kind of like to roll. But God says, man, just keep serving. Just keep moving. Keep just living for me. And as you're on the way, I will lead you. I'll direct you. You've heard me say oftentimes that God does not steer a parked car. And how we need to be continuing on moving, trusting the Lord with these things. Verse 29. Verse 29 says, Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out, of the ma- out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've told about my errand. And he said, Speak on. Let me stop right there. So it's interesting, we see Laban come onto the scene now. And Laban is going to be a man that we'll see elsewhere in Genesis as this person that comes and kind of um, becomes that match for Jacob in the scheming department. That's kind of the life that Laban was. His character is seen here in that he's driven by greed and wealth. When he saw Rebecca with the jewelry, he's like, oh, all right, he got some expensive goods. I got to go meet this man. Maybe it's going to help me out a little bit. And he's bringing him in out of the house. And Laban is kind of a man that's, you know, governed by greed and wealth. He's a schemer. And uh, he's going to be kind of uh, that match for Jacob here, in a sense, and give Jacob a dose of his own medicine, as we'll see later on in the book of, of uh, Genesis. So Laban's introduced here. Now, in verse 34, basically, this man, this servant is saying, listen, I want to share with you. My story is there. And so in the next number of verses, we're going to read a, a, a good amount right now because it just this servant is just kind of relaying now all that's happened, all right? So it says in verse 34 that he said, uh, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife from my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, "Ah, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you, and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife from my son, from my family, and from my father's house house you'll be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family for if they will not give her to you then you'll be released from my oath verse 42 and this day i came to the well and said O lord god of my master abraham if you will now prosper the way in which i go behold i stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water and i say to her please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink and she says to me drink and i will draw from your camels also let her be the woman whom the lord has appointed for my master's son but before i'd finished speaking in my heart there was rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder and she went down to the well and drew water and i said to her please let me drink notice that this man eliezer is just sitting there he's just praying in his heart He's just seeking the Lord. And before he's even kind of finished a prayer, all of a sudden the Lord just brings her back and he's just like, oh, all right, awesome. 
God, great timing here. And in verse 46, she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the braces on her wrists. And I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his own. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn the right hand, or turn to the right hand or to the left. Verse 50 says, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either good or bad, or bad or good. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard their words, that he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Now, again, notice there in verse 34, Eliezer, he mentions himself, but he remains anonymous. He, he simply says, I am Abraham's servant. That's all he says. He doesn't mention himself by name. Just as the Holy Spirit, again, reminder, he does not look to draw focus to himself, but to Jesus as he seeks to testify of Jesus. That's why you know when somebody is walking in the Spirit, when somebody's being filled with the Spirit, what's going to happen? They're going to glorify Christ. You're going to see Jesus all the more. That's why I desire that I might be just filled daily with the Holy Spirit. Not so that I can walk around and make myself look good. Look at how spiritual I am. You want a gift? I'll give you a gift. You want to hear a word from the Lord? I'll give you a word from the Lord. Sometimes people use these things, these giftings of the Spirit or a work of the Spirit to just kind of glorify the flesh sometimes. And yet the Spirit's work is always to glorify Jesus. You know that you're in a genuine move of the Spirit when Jesus is being exalted. And Jesus is the one that's seen and evident, and not man. And so Eliezer remains anonymous here. Now the retelling of the story that we just went through, again, might seem kind of monotonous to us, but to those in this time, it was kind of an, an essential method of emphasis. And the, the major theme in the story is, once again, emphasized. It's that providence of God. It's that providence of God that, that Laban and, and Rebecca's family are all seeing as like, we... We see and know that this is obviously of the Lord, is what caused them to be convinced that this was not by the, by the will of man, that God was at work here. The thing they said in verse 50, notice that, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. They saw that it was so evidenced that God was guiding and providing in this providence of the Lord. So verse 54, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, um, ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, I'll let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least 10. After that, she may go. Sounds a little bit like Laban, doesn't it? Hey, we're gonna see that similarly only a lot longer. Then in verse 56, he said to them, do not hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We'll call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. I think I'm going to make this the prayer for Sunday on Mother's Day. May you become the mother of thousands of tenth. I don't know if people would actually appreciate that, would they? They may not. Maybe they better not. But so notice something here. Um, there in, in verse, mm, where did I see that now? I, I've lost it. Yeah, uh, verse 55, right? What are they doing? They're all saying, listen, let's just delay this a little bit. You don't need to go right away. Let her just remain. Just hang out. Let's, there's no hurry right? See, the enemy is always trying to persuade us to stay a little longer in the world, to indulge ourselves a little while longer rather than pursuing Christ, rather than 
following Christ. There's an ancient story about three demons who are talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plans to tempt and ruin men. The first said, I will tell them that there is no God. Satan said, that's not going to delude many, for they know there's a God already. Creation just kind of proves that. Well, the second said, I will tell them that there is no hell. Satan answered, you will deceive no one that way. Men know even now that there is a hell for sin, that there is consequences and punishment for actions. That's not going to work. The third said, I will tell them that there's no hurry. Satan said, go, and you're going to ruin them by the thousands. See, the enemy is looking to always put that into people's minds. There's no hurry. Oh, there'll be time down the road to take care of that, to commit your life to the Lord. Just have a little more fun right now. There'll be time later. And yet, how many people have gotten caught up, tripped up, and kept in bondage to the things of the world and have never had that opportunity or, or heart that's been open to truly surrender? But look at Rebecca's response here. Rebecca's response now to when they gather and say, let's, let's ask her personally. Let's see what she has to say. Rebecca says at the end of verse 58, I will go. I will go. See, it must always be the voluntary submission of the individual to follow after Christ. Just like the disciples, when Jesus says, come and follow me, they dropped the nets, they left everything, and they followed him. They weren't being coerced into it. They weren't being, you know, pushed into it, forced into it. Jesus said, hey, follow me, I'm going to make you fishers and men. All right, I have no idea what fishers and men is, but let's give it a try. They drop the nets and they're going. And Rebecca here in the same way, I will go. She's ready to give all up to go and follow here now. And interestingly, the family of Rebecca pronounces a blessing upon her that paralleled that same word spoken to Abraham by God back in Genesis 22, verse 17. Just flip over there real quick. Genesis 22, verse 17. Notice this. Look at the comparison with verse 60 of chapter 24. It said there, in verse 17, blessing I'll bless you and multiplying I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. This is exactly what Rebecca's family, interestingly, who's again far from God, is pronouncing the same blessing that God had given Abraham directly. This is yet another gracious confirmation of all that God is gonna do through Abraham and now is gonna continue to fulfill that through Isaac and Rebekah. And they give this great word that lines up exactly what God has already pronounced. Then in verse 61, then Rebekah and her maids arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. They followed the man. That's Eliezer representing the Holy Spirit. That's the, the spirit-filled life. Our role, you see, is to be led by the Spirit in all that we do. And not just to be led, but to be filled and empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is a life full of excitement and blessing because it's a life that's not lived for self. Spirit-filled life is the one that said, I'm emptying myself of self. I want to be filled with the Spirit again. I want to promote Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. I want to follow Him in all that I do. And that's the life that's going to be the life of blessing, the life that's going to be rich, filled with excitement and joy. Now notice, they're riding back a long ways on camels. And if you've ever ridden a camel, you know it's not the premier choice of transportation. Can I get an amen, Diane, right? Amen. Diane and I had the privilege of riding up Mount Sinai on camels. And not just riding up Mount Sinai on camels, riding up in the pitch black of night so we could get up to the top for sunrise and we're walking up this switchback trail we don't know kind of how close the camels are it's probably better that it was at night because we don't know how close the camels are getting to the edge of the cliff and you know sometimes they're kind of getting a little bit wobbly we're like oh it's not not fun it's not comfortable right it wasn't pleasant but we made it I was singing soprano the rest of the trip but we made it we got there it was good but here they are, and they're riding back. And yet, I think it's just such a fitting picture, isn't it, my friends, that here's Rebecca, the picture of the church. And they're waiting to see their bridegroom. And guess what? The journey isn't always going to be easy. It might get bumpy. 
It might be difficult. There might be bruises along the way. We're going to face trials and hardships, but we remember that we have a blessed hope. We fix our eyes on Jesus and know that it is all working out to his good purposes, which will all be to our benefit and gain. We're not promised an easy journey. We're not promised an easy ride, but we're promised to make it to the other side to which we will be rejoicing for all of eternity. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, remember that, it's for a moment, it's temporary. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And Rebecca, no doubt, will experience that, as too will we all. Verse 62. Here, we're getting near the end, guys. Are you still with me? Doing all right? Verse 62. Now, uh, verse, yeah. Now, Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked. And there the camels were coming. Then Rebecca lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field? to meet us and the servant said it is my master so she took a veil and covered herself and they ran in slow motion to greet each other and it was very dynamic no that could I don't know it could happen but and and the servant <laughs> with Isaac's hair just blowing in the no. and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he took Rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here's Isaac. He's coming from, it says, Bir Lahai Roma, which is, is translated, the well of the living one who sees. The well of the living one who sees. That was mentioned back, remember, in Genesis chapter 16 with Hagar, who's kind of, you know, put out from the house. And yet there she was met by the angel of the Lord, who again came and comforted her. She recognized that God sees god knows god's with her and isaac is experiencing that same thing and isaac now he's just walking you know rebecca looks who's this man just walking towards and and you think at at 40 years of age and isaac is 40 years old right now you think at 40 years of age never been married he's like going to be sprinting to get to his bride he's like i don't want to waste any more time right he's just walking it is kind of wonder like why does it just seem like you're just taking your time it can seem like that with us as a church waiting to see Jesus, right? We might sit there and question, Jesus, how come you haven't come already? How come it just seems like you're taking your time? I'm ready. I'm looking forward to being with you. Take us now, but how come? There seems to be this delay, and it can be a struggle. But understand, like Peter says, he's not delaying. He's not slack concerning his promises. He's long-suffering, wishing that no one would perish. He's looking to see more people come and be a part of this beautiful relationship we enjoy with him. And I pray that we have that same heart of patience. James would say in James 5, verse 7, 8, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the, the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also... Be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Here's the great thing, we know Jesus is indeed coming and I do believe he's coming soon, but establish your hearts. Continue on with what the Lord has for you. Continue on that same heart like Jesus has that no one would have to perish. May we continue to share the good news. May we see as many people be a part of that beautiful reunion when Jesus comes back again to gather his bride. And I love what we, what we read there. Um, oh, where did I see it? Um, yeah, he took, I love that. He, in verse 67, Isaac brought her into mother's tent and he took Rebekah. Um, and I think that was mentioned uh, elsewhere too. It doesn't matter. But that, you know, Jesus is coming again where he's going he's gonna to rapture up his bride. He's going to catch up. He's going to take us. And he's going to bring us home with him. Interestingly, the first time that we see Isaac after his experience on Mount Moriah there in Genesis 22, the first time we see him is when he comes out to meet Rebekah. 
so too the first time we will see the Savior after his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension is when he returns to claim his chosen bride. We read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and 18 already, and it, it clarifies that clearly. Isaac's meeting with Rebekah is one of tender beauty. Without ever having seen her before, he married her and says that he loved her. Oh, just be reminded of the love that the Savior has for you, the bridegroom has towards his bride. He's coming soon, and we're going to experience the fullness of the love of the Savior that I think we only experience just to a small degree right now. And interesting, unlike other patriarchs, Rebecca was the only bride that Isaac had. How sweet is that? To summarize the pictures of Isaac, Rebecca, Jesus, and the church, both Rebecca and the church were chosen for marriage. This is from David Guzik. Both were chosen for marriage before they knew it. Were necessary for the accomplishment of God's eternal purpose. Were destined to share in the glory of the Son. Learned of the Son throughout his representative, or through his representative. Must leave all with joy to be with the Son. Were loved and cared for by the Son. Rebecca came to be received by Isaac without ever seeing him or knowing him. That's commitment. And then we see that both Isaac and Jesus were promised before their coming, finally appeared at the appointed time, were conceived and born miraculously, were given a special name before birth, were offered up and sacrificed by the Father, were brought back from the dead, were head of a great company to bless all people, prepared a place for their bride, and had a ministry of prayer until united with the bride. That's what we see Isaac doing at the end of this chapter, interceding, meditating, praying, as Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father, interceding and praying for us and awaiting the day to come and bring us home where he's preparing a place for us. And one day, again, as Paul says, or as Jesus said, that we might be with him, that we might be where he is. What a sweet day that's gonna be. How wonderful to see this all pictured and revealed here in the book of Genesis for us. The work of salvation is not a, a random thing. It's not a afterthought. This is something that God has had in preparation since, you know, the beginning of time. And we're thankful for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful to have such a loving and good bridegroom. Thank you for choosing us and calling us as the bride of Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that was sent into the world to draw us, to lead us to you, to awaken our hearts to the love of God, the love of our Savior. And I pray, God, that we would all be those that are just walking in and enjoying just this sweet relationship with you. May we not take it for granted. May we understand that this was accomplished through the death the resurrection of our Savior. It was costly. So Lord, may we cherish what we have in you. And I pray that we would be those that are seeing the days that we're living in. And the days drawing to an end where we believe you're coming soon. And Lord, may that not cause us just to sit back and wait. May it cause us to get out into the world and continue to share the gospel and the good news to see many more come to be a part of this salvation and life and relationship with you. Lord, may we see many more come in and know you as their Lord and Savior. May we see the lost be saved. And if you're watching maybe at home right now or at a later time, or maybe you're here and you, you've never made that commitment to Jesus, you've never recognized what he has done for you, Understand that there are many that try to live by the law today. They try to live by their own good standards and be a good person thinking that this is going to merit them eternal life. The Bible says there's only one way through Jesus Christ. He came and died to pay the penalty for your sin, the penalty that we couldn't pay ourselves. We can't earn our way. It's simply given as a gift of salvation to all that believe and put their trust in Jesus Christ. He died on a cross. He rose again to provide forgiveness of sin and to provide eternal life. To where we can know, as we receive him as our Lord and Savior, we have life now and life everlasting. That one day we're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. What a day that's going to be. 
And I want you to know that that is yours, free, freely, by you simply putting your trust in Jesus. If you haven't done that before, would you do that? Make that commitment to give your life to him. Confess your sin and confess your need for him. Put your trust in him. And when you do that, you become a child of God. You become part of that bride of Christ as we've seen here tonight. What a beautiful, precious thing that is. Receive him tonight as your Lord and Savior. Pray a simple prayer of asking him into your life to forgive you your sin, to make you whole, to make you clean, and to give you life. And Lord, we thank you again just for all that you've done. Lead us on through this week, the remainder of the week. May we live every moment for you. May we live every moment with you in relationship and fellowship with you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we went really long tonight, guys, but thanks for bearing uh, with me there.